This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, and it's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, is out this week, so hold off on the pet questions for this Thursday. Tigers and zebras are great animals to observe, but what would you do if they suddenly appeared in your backyard? Well, today the tigers and zebras we're going to talk about are butterflies that can be found in various parts of the state. To talk about the beautiful creatures and his recent nature observations, we'll welcome back to the show our good friend biologist Joe McGee. And as always, we want to hear from you about what you're experiencing with your encounters with nature. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. So if you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, always like to remind you that it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning, Joe. Glad to have you back in studio with us. How have you been? I've been fine. Uh, I've been in making the best I can with all this heat mm-hmm. by observing the butterflies. Butterflies like the heat. Oh, okay. Or, I mean, that's when you see so many different species of butterflies. So uh, it's sort of the redeeming factor of, of uh, enduring the heat. <laughs> Now, I know that you also uh, study frogs and, and like to go frog hunting and that sort of thing. I, and I would imagine that they're pretty good at seeking out whatever water sources they need because I would, could imagine this heat's not doing well for, for frogs That's either. That's right. I noticed last night the only frogs I could hear were every, <clears throat> at a few places I could hear cricket frogs. They'll, they're the last ones to stop singing, but the green tree frogs and the bird voice tree frogs and those species are not are not seeing it now, and they were just oh a week or ten days ago. But interestingly, every night now when I go out on if I go out on my front stoop, there will be one or two pickerel frogs, a frog that's you know not considered to be real common or they're not seen very often. I think they stay under my house during the day when it's so hot because it's moist. You know how mm-hmm. basements are or under or crawl spaces can be damp. Mine is too damp to tell you the truth. And then about eight o'clock or when, after the sun sets, uh, here they are sitting out there. And a time or two, I'll have to confess, I've tossed a cricket to them and they go for it. So I leave a light on just a little while. Uh, Pickerel frogs like to hang out in caves in that twilight zone, you know, the area between daylight and real, the real darkness of the cave. So that's kind of what I think the, you know, under my house is like for them. It's like a, a damp cave. So I create the twilight conditions for them for a little while. But I looked last night, and there, one of them was—I didn't see both of them last night. I just saw one. But uh, uh, And then this morning when I was getting ready to leave, I'm kind of, you know, I'm sort of behind schedule, as we always are when we're leaving. And Java told me, just (laughs) slow down, don't worry about it. But anyway, getting ready to get in my vehicle to take off, and here comes a little toadlet. That's a year, uh, young of the year toad. And in my area, that's probably a southern toad. That's the species I have, southern toad. And I thought, just, and it goes under my vehicle, just as sure as I don't do something about that, when I back out, I'm going to run over it. And it'll be the end of that little toilet. And I, you know, I'm thinking about the program I'm coming to. <laughs> I mean, it'd be kind of hypocritical to do that. So, <laughs> so I got a, I, I've got to get something to, you know, make him leave. And I got, I found a broom. 
and just approached him, you know, on my knees now and shoot him. And sure enough, as soon as the broom got close to him, uh, he hopped out or it hopped out and disappeared under some junk on my carport. So um, <clears throat> for the creatures that need water, I'm, well, I mean, everybody needs water. So does the frogs and other types of wildlife have almost like an inane sense to know I can't go any further because it's so hot and I need to stay close to my water? So I, th- I think they do. Uh, uh, they're not – well, I, I don't know about their intelligence, but uh, the green tree frogs, which you know form enormous choruses around ditches full of water and rain pools and that sort of thing, I can be found later on when uh, when those have dried up. I find them in weedy patches. If you if you if I pro- and that's where I get a lot of my photographs in the daytime. And they uh, they will change color when they get really warm. Their color changes to really pale green. Sometimes they look almost white. So uh, there's physiological changes taking place there. I don't know how you know. I don't know about their decision making process, but. Yeah, they they like you know amphibians like water. They uh, they're not going to stray too far from it. They, and if if they there's none to you know stray from, they stay in shady places. If they dark shady places. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be visiting with our guest biologist Joe McGee throughout the hour. <clears throat> so, Joe, we're going to be talking, as I said, about uh, some uh, butterflies. But what are some of the other creatures that you've been observing lately? Bees. Bees and butterflies go together, and uh, uh, in fact, I'll show you some. Yeah, I've got a phone now that takes all these pictures. Yesterday, I was out in the heat, and uh, there's a picture of a female American bumblebee. Mm-hmm. A, a bee. There's some concern about that in certain parts of the country, but I, st- I still see them. It's on ironweed. If folks will look out, they'll see. You know, ironweed is this beautiful, tall, royal purple. A wildflower blooming right now, and it really combines nicely, by the way, with the goldenrod. But I'm seeing uh, bumblebees, male and females. Uh, some interesting wasps. Some I don't even know the name. Some of them don't even have a common name. I'll I'll go to iNaturalist or uh, BugGuide. You know, dot net, and uh, they will identify some of these for me that I you know I just can't identify them, and uh, they don't really have a a common name. So bees and butterflies, hot weather is good for for them pretty much. I suppose it can get too hot for them. I sometimes see bees avoid their nectaring. They're going from, or getting pollen, going from flower to flower. And they will take a break in in a little shady spot on the plant under a leaf or, uh, you know, and get out. And obviously, it seems obvious to me, they're getting out of the heat for Mm -hmm. a little while. Take a break. And then later on, they buzz again. Um, Are some wasps pollinators? Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Uh, not necessarily intentionally. In fact, butterflies are not intentional. They they can pollinate. I don't. I'm not sure it's intentional. But uh, in the process of looking for other things, they pick up some pollen and move it around. So some pollinate, pollination is accidental, and some of it's uh, intentional. With with the bees, you know, some bees collect pollen. And so, um, I mean, is that the time of year when that – is there a time of year when pollen gathering is, is more prevalent than other parts of the year? Well, it's when things are in bloom. And it, it begins uh, – you know, you'll hear uh, health reports about you know, pollen being a problem for us, for people. I'm not – I don't think I'm personally affected by pollen. But it begins in the spring. Uh, but a lot of that pollen is, is moved around by the wind. I'm, and, of course, I'm talking about dense pollen, heavy pollen that, uh, that insects move around. But it starts, yeah, uh, as soon as it warms up in the spring, there's something blooming. And there's uh, like there's a little bee called a southeastern uh, blueberry bee. 
and it, it pollinates blueberries, and it only flies in the spring when the blueberries are blooming. Now, there's, I think there are other bees that can pollinate blueberries, but that's, that's one that does. So, yeah, it starts, or as soon as something starts blooming and continues until, you know, frost, when, it, when, it, when uh, you know, frost stops everything, I guess, stops all the... Let's uh, take a phone call before our first break, so we will say good morning to Brenda, who calls from Poplarville. Good morning, Brenda. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to suggest to everyone that they put water out uh, in very shallow containers. Uh, I have mine particularly around the perimeter of my house because I do see the toads going under there. It has been so dry in Poplarville that the ground is cracking and so I have started doing that. I always have water outside my front gate for any wandering uh, dog. I have scattered bowls of water throughout the property. And I also turn my sprinkler on and move it around the yard, um, let it run for a good while, not for the lawn, but for the wildlife. And when I do that, I usually hear the – I do have bird baths as well, but I'll hear the birds start to call as soon as I turn that sprinkler on and they will fly very near it or kind of through it and butterflies come also when the sprinkler's on. So just any way that folks can get a little extra water out there right now for wildlife, they are very much in need of it. Yes. That's and in all sorts of containers, you know, shallow right. and tall and everything. Those are very good suggestions. I have a, in fact, I, it's on right now. I have a dripper, uh, dripping into my bird bath and on monday of this i believe it was monday monday or tuesday i saw a yellow warbler come i hadn't seen a yellow warbler in my yard in a long time they used to see more of them um they began showing up in late july migrating south and uh and then you'd see a few in august and uh, i was just delighted to see that one at the dripper but yeah i have a uh, on my back step i have a an old skillet with water in it and i've seen toads in that skillet I, one time not yeah. this year but i saw 20 odd female orchard orioles in that one skillet bathing <gasps> splashing in the water oh and so oh, yeah beautiful it's really important and also i was talking about the pickerel frogs earlier i actually have an old cookie sheet that i have out there and i have not seen it full of water I, I, I put fresh water in it every night I have not seen them in that. I don't know that they're actually seeking out water, but it's available if they want to. All right, uh, Brenda, thanks for the call. Good uh, suggestions. The the one thing, though, we also hear about, you know, water, stagnant water and mosquitoes. So if you're doing this, would it be a good idea to not just sit it out there and forget about it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's very important. Uh, I hose my bird bath out every day. For one thing, the water war- it gets really warm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this kind of weather. And I hose all that old water out so that it, the water is cool, fresh, and then uh, fix the dripper so it's dripping into that cool, fresh water. And also the, the line for the dripper is, you know, the water heats up. It's black, and it absorbs a lot of heat. So the first water that comes out of the dripper is really warm. I mean, really warm this time of year. So I make sure all that's flushed out. And, yeah, you you have to uh, make sure that you replace that every day, really, this time of year, so the mosquitoes don't uh, lay eggs in it. Right. So it benefits the wildlife but doesn't benefit the mosquitoes. So, so Joe, you really are one of our favorite guests because you do have a good knowledge of, of, of a number of different things. And usually we let you kind of pick what you want to talk about when you come in. So you chose butterflies this time around. Why did you what, – what was, what was it about that that interested you? Well, for one thing, I'm seeing a good variety of butterflies right around my, my house – uh, and I, th- 
was especially excited by the fact that I've been seeing more and more zebra swallowtails in my yard. That's They're sort of uncommon. And then this is the first year that I found the caterpillars of the zebra swallowtail. So I just had I had butterflies on my mind. <laughs> and uh, I thought, why not? And could, I thought it would be interesting to compare uh, the tiger swallowtails with the zebra swallowtails. Tiger swallowtails, you can see them almost anywhere. In fact, on the way over here today, I saw – I stopped – at our gas station, and I saw a tiger swallowtail flying, just gent- softly or slowly flying around the sign that tells you what how much the gas costs. It's a sign about two, two stories tall. It's sort of poignant in a way. <laughs> it should be fluttering over a flower bed, right? But there it was. And I thought, okay, you would. I would never see a zebra swallowtail doing that. I don't think they still need the you know the wild places, and it has something possibly to do with their host plant. So. Uh, but that's why I thought this is a good time of year to talk about butterflies. One of the few redeeming qualities of summer, or the, you know, when it's too hot, when yes. hot. I love summer actually, but it can be too hot. Well, um, I, I I agree. I like summer too, but this is like, come on now, this is a little ridiculous. Just a quick story. I went to visit my mom in upstate New York last week. High the, the high temperature while I was there was eighty. Uh, but uh, then when I got home uh, in Jackson, as the minute I stepped off the plane onto the jetway, I was hit by that. Hot, humid air, and I'm like, "Yep, now I'm back home." <laughs> yes, I, on the way over here, I had the radio on, and they're predicting a low of 80 tonight. I think in Vicksburg in the Jackson area, low of 80, not high, but low. We've got another caller on the line, so we will say good morning this time to Jerry, who's called in from Madison. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Okay, thank you. I had a question about: Is there any documentation or evidence that tadpoles eat mosquito larvae? And if not, what do they eat as they uh, grow and turn into uh, frogs and toads? Thank you. I I think their main I think they're vegetarians actually when they're tadpoles. Their mouths are designed for scraping up algae and bacteria, microorganisms in the water. I, I'm not sure that they do eat mosquito larvae. Larvae. Uh, it's possible that. They do, you know, ingest some sort of by accident. It's sort of like with woodpeckers. You can find uh, sawdust in the stomach of a woodpecker, but they don't eat sawdust. It's just in the process of getting insects, you know, ants or insect larvae or whatnot in the rotten wood, they ingest a little bit of the wood too. I don't think tadpoles necessarily eat mosquitoes, but the the adult, when they become frogs, they do. When they become adult frogs, uh they, they're not too picky about what they eat. Actually, Java did a quick uh, search, so he's got some information for us. And Joe, you are abs- you you are correct, but but once it says once tadpoles reach about six weeks of age, or they've developed the legs, they do become carnivores. Yeah, I was going to say probably it's in that transitional period that mm-hmm. they become carnivores, and they will eat the larvae, uh, mosquito eggs, and um, uh, let's see, dragonfly eggs. You yeah, know, there things you go. like that. Yeah, when when tadpoles leave the water or as frogs, you know they've developed their legs. They still have a little bit of their tail off, and there's a little stump of a tail remaining. Uh, so there is this transitional period when they uh, switch from being a vegetarian to car- <laughs> carnivory. 
you know, we're going to jump into the butterfly conversation, Joe, but the pictures that you bring in every time are always so stunning. And you brought us some, some great ones uh, today that I think Java will probably be able to post online with the, uh, with the, with the podcast and the archive. But did, for you, did sort of nature hunting and photographing always go together? The nature hunting came first. I'm, I'll have to confess, I'm not tech savvy. And I didn't take many pictures with a camera that requires film. I just, it's, I mean, that's, that's work. The, the, the people who took those early photographs, uh, my hat is off to them. But with the, uh, development of digital cameras and then the iPhone, you can really get, cl- it, it, you've got to be slow with, with all wildlife. You've got to be slow and steady. And you can get really close to uh, some of the insects with an iPhone and some of the digital cameras. So the photography came later. In fact, fairly recently in my life. But I appreciate your compliments. Well, no, seriously. I mean, every time you come in, just some stunning photographs. So that's one of the one of the many reasons why we like having you on the show. Hey, so let's start with some butterfly basics. Uh, what is the typical life cycle of the butterfly from egg to adult? Yeah. Uh, the butterfly that we see flying around, that's just one quarter of the life history of this insect. They begin life as an, an egg, a female butterfly lays eggs on leaves or, or on the host, what's called a host plant, the plant that the caterpillar, uh, caterpillar will eat when it hatches. And the caterpillar hatches. And all, for most species or many species, its first meal is its own eggshell. It eats its own eggshell, and then it begins to nibble on uh, whatever plant it's laid on. And this summer, you know, I've been searching for several years. I was determined to see zebra swallowtail caterpillars, and they just escaped me. I, and I had read that they feed more at night. That's, I'm not sure that's necessarily true now that I have actually found them. But I went out at night and looked up one time and saw what I thought, oh, boy, there's my, there's my uh, zebra swallowtail caterpillar. But it was a chickadee roosting. And you had to be careful when, if you're under a bird that's roosting. But that didn't happen to me. They can, you know, poop on you. But uh, but f- this year I got lucky, and uh, I was just on cloud nine when I was able to photograph and follow these. Cat- I have videos I've made of the caterpillars feeding on the pawpaw leaves. Now, the reason I was able to find the caterpillars, I have pawpaw trees. I have an accidental pawpaw patch, actually, in my yard, and that's the host plant for zebra swallowtails. So I would imagine this is the metamorphosis, and so, again, that's when the the um, the caterpillar changes into the butterfly over a series of time, I guess, right? Yeah, the, the, okay, the caterpillar, uh, it ha- and they're tiny at first. Uh, you can often overlook them, and they often resemble bird droppings. That's a way to escape predation by birds. And they eat and grow and eat and grow. And, the, and the, the caterpillars themselves go through several stages called instars uh, before they enter this state. And they move around. If you, if you find the caterpillars, you may see one on a leaf, you know, this morning. And then by noon, it's moved to another leaf or it's somewhere else on the plant. Uh, but after a while, you'll notice they become stationary if you're able to follow them over the several days that this takes. And... They enter a what? Uh, it's it's not a re- they're not resting. They they go through this dramatic transformation from caterpillar to adult butterfly, and they're in what's called a chrysalis. And uh, when they leave the chrysalis, they leave that skin behind. I brought it's called an exuvia. That what they leave behind. And I actually brought one in uh, for for you, Kevin. There's an exuvia. <laughs> the, it, the the chrysalis looks like a, a dry leaf or a desiccated leaf just hanging on the plant. That's what they often look like. And that's a, probably another way to escape predation, to look kind of innocuous. And then the butterfly comes out, and they seem to come out 
between midnight and dawn, at night, but say after midnight, but before the sun comes up, that's when I had I've had the experience with the black swallowtails uh, leaving the chrysalis. I wanted to see it when it happened, but because you know they're all they've been in this, it's almost cylindrical. Their wings are crumpled, uh, and they slowly crawl out of the chrysalis, and they have to pump their wings up, pump blood into their wings. And I wanted to see that and maybe make video, but they were, when I went out, you know, at dawn, they were already out of the chrysalis and almost ready to fly. So as you mentioned, they eat a lot. And I imagine, you know, we're talking about this really amazing transformation. So they need all the fuel they can get, I would imagine. But I guess that also is why sometimes caterpillars can be considered to be pests because they're eating so much. That's true, especially with moth caterpillars. But with butterflies, not so much, but there are two or three species that that can cause problems. For one, and, and I'm... We can talk about it later. Is is the black swallowtail, the calip- caterpillars of the black swallowtail are sometimes called parsley worms because they uh, lay, the females lay their eggs on parsley or members of the parsley family, and so if you're raising parsley for you know to sell or you know, for your kitchen or whatnot, uh, it could it could be a problem. Uh, I ha- I got I have parsley going for the swallowtails, not for myself, but for the swallowtails actually. There's another, uh, well, a couple of other butterflies. There's an introduced species called the cabbage white. It's European cabbage white. And it can be a problem with, uh, ca- if you're growing cabbage, you're early in the spring, cabbage, broccoli, those sorts of things. Uh, that that one can be a pet, little green caterpillar. I, I had a brother who really detested that, that particular butterfly. And then there's the uh, giant swallowtail. Its caterpillars are called orange dogs because they, the host plant is citrus. And you can you can probably see where I'm going with that. Uh, they could really be a problem in Florida, where citrus is grown, or California, mm-hmm. or even you know hobbyists in Mississippi may grow citrus lemons or uh, some kind of citrus, and they can actually uh, do some damage to the citrus trees, the, or the small citrus plants. You know, I would imagine the the one that eats the uh, the broccoli. Kids around the country are probably happy about that because you know that's one. Of, <laughs> although I like broccoli now, I did not like it as a kid. But that's one of those things we think. Ugh, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like broccoli. Yeah, I, I do. I like it very much. Kevin Farrell here with our guest Joe McGee. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. If you missed any of today's show, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Or if you download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone, then you get to listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. Email animals at mpbonline.org. Let's go to the phone line starting in Eupora. Our friend Rachel is on the line. Good morning, Rachel. Always good to hear from you. What do you have for us today? Good morning, all. Uh, I don't have anything for you. I'm asking for information, and I have embarrassing little information on my end um i used to have a book that had every uh a picture of every wildflower in mississippi and it also listed uh, the butterflies that used each wildflower as a host plant and that's all i know and i saw this woman uh she's from tupelo and i saw her years ago at the Grenada Library. And it's a wonderful book, and I just am hoping somebody has some uh, information about it. 
I'm not, you don't remember who wrote the book, or uh, there were probably multiple. I'm so sorry, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, here's what I rely on. I have a whole bunch of books on wildflowers. I have Wildflowers of Alabama, Wildflowers of Louisiana, Wildflowers of Mississippi, Tennessee. And that, the, that's what I go to. Uh, if you want to know about the host plants, there's there are at least two field guides to caterpillars. There's one uh, by David Wagner it's, uh, pr- from Princeton University Press. It, it includes both moth and uh, butterfly caterpillars. It's a real good book. I highly recommend it. Uh, I think it's called Caterpillars of Eastern North America, Field Guide to Caterpillars of Eastern North America by David Wagner. And then there's one called Caterpillars of Field and Garden by Jeffrey Glassberg. Does the name Jeffrey Glassberg ring a bell with you? He's... He's sort of a butterfly guru, guru in uh, uh-huh. in the United States. He's he has written or published a number of books called Butterflies Through Binoculars, and uh, this book on caterpillars. You don't need binoculars for caterpillars, but it's in that series. And you could look up a, if you want to look up, say the uh, the giant swallowtail. You look up the caterpillar for the giant swallowtail, and it lists the host plants. And it's you'll see it's mostly citrus, but there's some native plants that. Uh, uh, that the giant swallowtails also use. I, I'm sorry, I don't. Uh, the book you're mentioning doesn't ring a bell. Uh-huh. Was the well, woman? In, I just want to say it's so important not to mow down the uh, wildflowers because they are used by so many yeah, things. Yeah. And I wanted to add that I found I found a big beetle. It was about two inches long and about an inch wide, green in color. And I wondered if anybody might know what kind of beetle that is. Did you or, Did you have a photograph of it that you could send us? I don't, and it was in the dirt, and it was digging down, and I didn't disturb it. I didn't want to. Yeah, uh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, mm, uh, a green, green like uh, dark green. Uh-huh. Metallic. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't know. I, I would need a little more information. But talking about the not mowing the plants and everything, yeah, a lot of the things we consider weeds are host plants for the butterflies. And, and a lot of them use trees. For instance, our state butterfly, the uh, spice bush swallowtail, uses not just spice bush but sassafras, which grows along roadsides and whatnot. And I've, <laughs> I've had some major issues with uh, uh, sassafras being destroyed right in front of my house Uh the problem is that sassafras also makes a fruit for birds. It's very nutritious for birds, and they poop the seeds out, right? From, and so they come up under power lines and along roadways, and uh, uh, some people don't like that. But I, I kept the ones in front of my house. I would cut them down about every other year. That doesn't kill the sassafras. It comes back. In fact, it's better for the butterflies. The leaves, the, you know, the fresh foliage will be uh, nice and tender for the, for the caterpillars. But... Uh, uh, yeah, we we really have to think about things, uh, weeds and grass and so forth. Some some of those are host plants for butterflies. Rachel, appreciate your call. Let me leave you with this thought, seeing that my brother is a retired librarian. Go to your local library. Go to the reference desk. Tell them what you're looking for. They might not be able to find it, but that's their job, and I think they enjoy that sort of challenge, so they might be able to give you some help uh, as well. Our public libraries are a great resource here in Mississippi. So let's stay on the phone lines. Next, we're going to go to Ocean Springs because Jim has called in today. Good morning, Jim. Go ahead. Good morning, Kevin. How are you doing today? Doing good. What do you have for us today? 
I've uh, really enjoyed your program, and I have a question for your guest, who seems to be very knowledgeable in many things. Just an observation. For the past two weeks or so, on my way to work, I drive by this little patch of <clears throat> grass. It's no more than 50 feet by 50 feet on the corner of one of the little highways here. It contains maybe two or three little shrubs, and that's about it. But every morning, it's just swarming with dragonflies. I don't know what they're doing there. Uh, I'm not sure if they're feeding something that's emerging from the grass. But this has been going on for two weeks. And when I say a swarm, I mean a swarm of dragonflies. Yeah. And they don't seem to be anywhere. Don't seem to be anywhere else. Just right there. Uh, and I saw a little shade tree I'll pull under and observe this. And I don't know how long they do it um, uh, in the mornings, but early mornings that's happening. And I'm just curious to know if you, what your thoughts are about that, please. My thoughts are that you are correct. There, there's some tiny insect, probably, uh, probably more than one kind, emerging from that grass. And they, they're, they're, they're feeding. I think. I mean, that's my, my guess. Because the, there's no water there, right? Like no poop. There's no water. Yeah. No, uh, no, it's just right alongside the highway. And, yeah. You know, in the open sun, it's hot. Yeah. But boy, they're, they're active as can be. I think they're feeding on something because, uh, you know, dragonflies begin life in the water. So it's, I don't think this is necessarily mating behavior. Do they, you say you stopped and looked at, looked at them? Oh, yeah. There's a shade tree with uh, yeah. 30 feet from where this is happening. And I've been observing it. You know, for a few minutes every morning right. on my way to work, and it's just, it's incessant. It's we, just amazing. Do you think they're all the same kind of dragonfly? I, I can't get that close. Uh-huh, to yeah, me. yeah. Uh, but they're big. They're big dragonflies. Yeah, they they could be meadowhawks, or they could be common green darners, or it could be a mixed flock. And dragonflies will eat each other. You know, the big ones will catch the little <laughs> ones. And I've seen dragonflies catch butterflies even. Uh, but, I, yeah, I think you're onto something there. I think they are feeding on tiny insects that you can't see from, you know, from the road or from where you're parked. But the dragonflies, yeah. you see, if you look at a dragonfly closely, the head is mostly eyes. It's huge eyes they have, compound eyes. Uh, they are very visual insects. Well, it's just an interesting uh, observation to see such a great swarm all in one small place yeah. every day for yeah. the last two or three weeks. Is that in Ocean Springs? Yes. You said, yeah, uh, I'd, I would love to see that myself. <laughs> it sounds really interesting. Okay. I, you know, I tried to take a picture or a video, but it's hard to capture those little guys buzzing around. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a blur, kind of a blur but I've never yeah. seen that before. Yeah, dragonflies are extremely difficult to photograph. Uh, it takes a real professional for that. But if you get a good photograph of one, it's good because their wings are, you know, you see the veins in their wings and everything. But they are, they're, they're a challenge to photograph. All right, uh, Jim, thanks for your call this morning. Uh, what, and I might guess that if the dragonflies discovered that there's some tasty insects there, I mean, if it's something that they, they know of a known food source, that might be why they keep coming back to that same spot. Right. Food is very important to all, all critters, insects, mammals, birds, whatever. You know, food is re- really important. And uh, I think that's what they're doing. I think they're having a feast there on something. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines. We're going to go to the hub city of Hattiesburg next because uh, Janice has called in. And Janice, looks like you've got one pet-related question. Dr. Major's not with us this week, but so we might want to hold off on that. But what else do you have for us? Okay. Um, how to keep wasps and bees away from hummingbird feeders? <laughs> well, 
that's never been much of a problem for me. I must say, I'm not you know I'm not trying to say I'm better than thou, but uh, it, it, that. <laughs> and I, but I've been asked that before. I think maybe do you rinse your after you fill the feeder? Do you rinse it? Just hold it under a, uh, under the tap and rinse it really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I do that. I, occasionally, I like. I actually photographed a, a bee, a bumblebee. Uh, it's one called a common eastern bumblebee at my one of my hummingbird feeders this year. But it, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know why you would have a problem and I don't. Uh, but it's it's never much of a problem for me. It just every now and then I'll see. Uh, a bee or a wasp approach my hummingbird feeder, but it's uh, not too often. Uh, I better knock on wood. I may get home today and they may be covered up. Uh, but cleanliness would be important. I think, you know, keep, and so there's no sugar water on the outside of the feeder. I think that uh-uh. would, that would uh-uh. be important. No. Uh, no. But that doesn't solve your, okay. that doesn't solve your problem, does it? <laughs> no, well, I just may not be able to get liquids anywhere nearby. Other than that, uh, that's yeah, that's true. Uh, it may be re- drier where you are than where I am. D- is your feeder on a uh, uh, your hummingbird feeder? Does it's, it have an ant guard? Uh, no, you don't have an ant guard. Uh, uh, no. You know, full full of water. That's I have that. Now I use those an ant guard with you know it's just a something that hangs between the hook and the feeder that's full of water. It's like a moat. And I have tree frogs. Mm-hmm. I have tree frogs get in my uh, ant guards. Uh, you, you, okay, I, well, you might, I'll might just, try that because you may be right. They may be after the liquid more than the you know the sweet. Just curious, Janice. Yeah, do the year. it's just it's just this year and it is drier than just, it has been. Janice, I'm wondering when the hummingbirds show up, who seems to win the battle, as it were, to 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 at the feeders? Do they pretty much drive the bees away when when they're around? No, uh-uh. oh, no, that's the problem. So they so they avoid it when there are bees and wasps around. Pretty much was what you're thinking. Yeah, I think so. So anyway, well, thank you anyway. Yeah, I'm sorry we didn't have a a pet answer for I you, but. I'm going to try putting some water out, and the the the, the moat. It sounds like a really good idea too. Yeah, those are very inexpensive. Yeah, yeah. I've I've never had this problem before, so maybe it uh, maybe it's just this year. And the ant guards, okay. yeah, the ant guards are red, which helps bring in the hummingbirds too. Uh, in fact, I occasionally see the hummingbirds drinking from the ant guards. Uh, so yeah, try that mm-hmm. and see if, see what happens. We're going to go to Vicksburg next, and. Canoe, am I saying that right? Yes, you're right. Good morning. Good morning. I, I love the program uh, every week. I watch, I listen to um, this. Uh, these days so hot, and uh, in the evening between like five five thirty, I set the uh, rotate sprinkler sprinkler in the backyard, mm-hmm. and actually uh, water uh, some of the shrubs, uh, and I run for like uh, thirty forty minutes. And then it needs to be a slower motion, then you will see so many birds come to the shrub and the tree and take a shower. <laughs> yes. And it, it's, it's amazing. There's so many different kinds of birds. And uh, actually, at uh, 5 o'clock, they start coming and uh, land in the trees and waiting for me to set up the uh, sprinkler. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. I'm... <laughs> I believe you. Yeah, if they are desperate for water, uh, even yeah. m- maybe more desperate for water than food. Yeah, 
And, and so that, that's how I kind of highly recommend you. Can I set the chair and I sit down, you know, bathing. And uh, one, uh, one more thing is uh, this year I see uh, calculators, uh, many calculators and in my front yard. And then I saw the calculator with a black wing, and I was worried about it because I'm allergic to the, you know, the, the sting. But that turn, I found out calculators uh, with a wing, they don't have stinger. Yeah, that's so the, ma- the males, yeah. Yeah, so that was a, a good re- discovery. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the cal- when you say calculator, you're talking about this large, it looks like an ant, a huge ant, right? That, that's correct, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. actually a wasp, uh, a yeah. wingless wasp, and the sting is... Very memorable. I've been stung by when I was about, I don't know, four or five years, maybe six years old. I don't know, really young. I remember playing with one. I thought, oh, and I put a piece of bark over it, and it got that stinger out and stung me on my thumb, and I've never forgotten it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a name came from calculator. That's a name standing for. (laughs) Yeah, but they are beautiful insects. They really are. Oh, they are. Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to share. All right. Thanks, sir, for calling in, and, and thanks for listening to us each week. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. And, and, Joe, that's interesting because that's the second time someone's mentioned kind of the sprinkler thing. And so you're doing a good job for your yard, getting your, you know, your plants and your grass and water. But also, you might get this wonderful show of, of the birds when they spot a water source because you're saying as hot as it is, water is probably priority number one. That's right. They're desperate for water. And uh, I think what uh, – Kinu, that was her name, Kinu. Yeah, what she's doing is really good, and uh, the birds benefit, and she has the pleasure of, of watching that. All right, uh, let's wrap things up here um, about um, <clears throat> a good question I saw on our, my list here is uh, butterflies versus moths. Talk about how similar they are and maybe how dissimilar they are. Well, they're both uh, They're in the same uh, Insect order, They're the Lepidoptera, that means scale insects. They have this, this fine, like it's like powder uh, if you get it on your fingers. So they are related, but moths are uh, more, mo- most moths are active at night. Not all, there are day flying moths, but moths tend to be active at night, whereas butterflies are diurnal and you see them more in the daytime. Uh, more species of moths, I think, create problems for humans. You know, there's conflict with the uh, caterpillars devouring, uh, like the tomato hornworm. That's a, the caterpillar of a moth, and it, you know, it do, can really do a number on a tomato plant in a hurry. Um, the antennae on moths are often uh, feathery-like, whereas on butterflies, they're like a fine hair. With a, some of them have a knob on the end. Uh, butterfly uh, moths tend to be not uh, are not quite as colorful, perhaps uh, as uh, as butterflies are. Since you know, butterflies fly in the daytime, so the color is perhaps more important. Uh, there are more, many more species of moths on on the planet than there are butterflies. Uh, that's that's some of the high points of. Uh, um. I had a question that I forgot about, so let's move on to, because we did want to talk about, before time ran out, uh, the yellow and black tiger swallowtails uh, here in Mississippi. Where can they be found? Almost anywhere. They're, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't, you know, when I leave this building today, you know, in a few minutes or later uh, this morning, if I didn't see one fly by, you can see them in, in cities, uh, but especially in the country. And uh, I find them now coming to... Uh, the native wildflowers that are in bloom, like Leatris is blooming right now, uh, ironweed. They, they really like there's – a, there's a group of plants called uh, 
mountain mints. That and that seems like a misnomer for Mississippi. We don't have any mountains, but mountain mints grow in Mississippi. There's a narrow leaf mountain mint and a hoary mountain mint. That's H O A R Y. Uh, and uh, you'll see uh, tiger swallowtails around them. They, I have trouble finding their caterpillars, actually. They lay their eggs on members of the magnolia family and some other plants, like maybe black cherry, young ones. Whenever I have found uh, a tiger swallowtail caterpillar, it's been on tulip tree, which is in the magnolia family. It's not in the magnolia genus, but it's one. Some people may know it as yellow poplar, and I sometimes have found the uh, caterpillars of the eastern tiger swallowtail on the uh, tulip tree. So uh, tell us what they look like. It's our one of our largest butterflies. Uh, and I'll bet you almost everybody, I'm sure everyone listening to this program this morning has seen one. They're large. They're yellow with black uh, uh, markings. Very striking. You, you can't uh, misidentify a, a tiger swallowtail. However, there's, there's one little wrinkle in it. Some of them are all black. Uh, those are usually females, and they're mimicking uh, a toxic butterfly. It's a it's a form of mimicry. You, you, everybody's heard about the uh, vice the viceroy mimicking the monarch. Actually, in recent years, they've found out that both of those are toxic to birds or unpalatable to birds, both monarchs and viceroys. But uh, there's a butterfly called a pipe vine swallowtail. It's black. It it's it's really common, and sometimes. Uh, Tiger swallowtail females are black. In other words, there's a this color phase that's black, and it's thought that helps them avoid being uh, eaten by a bird because uh, uh, they resemble this uh, this toxic species or this unpalatable species. Well, that's do other creatures do that? That's interesting that they mimic something to to make them not less attractive to potential predators. Yeah, it's that's pretty common uh, in nature. Uh, some organisms. Mimic a toxic. They're not toxic, but toxic or unpalatable. But they mimic something that is. And sometimes toxic species mimic each other, like coral snakes. They're all venomous. And uh, you know, the, uh, the idea is that if you recognize one, you should be able to recognize all of them. All right. So, got about a minute and a half left. Let's wrap up by you mentioned it a couple times. But if you would, what are your sort of go to sources, uh, maybe on your phone or online, to help you identify some of the creatures that you see when you go out in nature? Yeah, if, uh, bugguide.net is really good. You can take a photograph, and there's a real simple uh, form you fill out for them and send it in, and they'll get back to you eventually. With sometimes they don't, but usually they do. And these are amateurs; you can't overwhelm them with photographs. But bugguide.net. Uh, iNaturalist is good, uh, but I still like the field guides, you know, the uh, field guide to caterpillars of eastern North America by David Wagner. That's really good. Uh, Caterpillars of Field and Garden by Jeffrey Glassberg. There are a whole bunch of field guides to butterflies, butterflies of eastern North America, uh, or or butterflies through binoculars by Jeffrey Glassberg. I'm trying to think of another one. There's the, in the Peterson Field Guide series. There's a butterfly field guide, so I still like the you know the actual hard copy field guides that you hold in your hand. But there's many uh, resources online now. I would say, there's another one I forgot to mention: the North American Butterfly Association (NABA) (N-A-B-A) North American Butterfly Association. They're really good, and uh, so if you uh, tap into some of those resources I just mentioned, you should be able to identify your your, your mystery butterfly or moth. All right. 
That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio with funding provided by listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit MPB uh, Creature Comforts at mpbonline.org. Today's show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Abram Nanny. So for our guest, Joe McGee, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.